Welcome to Bread. Romans has been described as the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. It's why we've entitled the series, The Complete Works of God. In Romans, we have the Christian manifesto in all its breadth. Ultimately, it's a manifesto to the freedom Jesus has come to bring. So that's what we'll be going for, freedom for everyone. Let me do a very, very swift recap of where we're at. Uh, Paul is writing to a split church. On the one hand, there are Jewish Christians insisting on their superiority because they are Jewish and they have the Jewish law and they have a lack of pagan idolatrous background. And on the other hand, there are Gentile Christians uh, who insist on their superiority because never having had the law, they uh, see themselves as better because they, are not, uh, ha- they don't have the potential to have its burdensomeness Um, affect them. Paul's response in Romans is to side with neither uh, and instead to call out the judgmental and boastful attitudes on both sides. It's these attitudes, he says, which show them to be like everyone else in the human race, unable to, uh, in and of themselves, deal with this universal problem that we all have our sort of violent tendency, our sinfulness, our um, way of uh, destroying the fabric of both ourselves and our relationship with other people and our relationship with God. How wonderful it is, therefore, says Paul, that we have Jesus, who is and has been able to deal with this fundamentally once and for all. In God's mercy, he uh, has, in Jesus, put to death all sin in his body. He's exposed it for what it is, all societal and Uh, cosmic and spiritual and, of course, personal sin. He's crucified it in his body. He's made a spectacle of it so that we might see it for what it really is, the bringer of pain and hurt and violence and death, the catch-all term for which Paul uh, uses is wrath. But in raising Jesus from the dead, God has vindicated him. He has proved his innocence. He has proved that he, amongst everyone, was the only person who should not have died. And in doing so, he has opened the way for every person who puts their faith in what Jesus has done there, accepted Jesus as the one true God-man who did what no one else could do, that we can then live as we were always intended to without the power of sin and all its consequences. A life free from all the terrible death that sin brings right here and also forever. And instead, we can live a life ruled, run, infected by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, says Paul, is the third person of the Trinity. He is the Spirit of Jesus. The means by which Jesus returned to his Father, his death and resurrection, has enabled the Spirit to be poured out on all flesh. Anyone Uh, Sorry, and he it is who fills the very being of the believer. He reorientates, he reinvigorates, he redeems, he refreshes, he reconstitutes our whole lives. It is the spirit that we are made for. And the Christian life is the life of the spirit. There are no two ways about it. He is not an optional extra. So, without the spirit, you're not going to get very far in the Christian life. But with him, you are going to come alive. He's given to everyone who will receive him without measure. 
And through him, we experience God's closeness and love. By him, we are convinced of the truth of the gospel. We're convicted of our brokenness and sin. Through him, we experience God's forgiveness and freedom. By him, our minds are renewed to think and believe the right things about God, that he is good, that he loves us, that he is close, that he doesn't hold us at arm's length, that he has come to be with us. And we think the right things about the world, that it is glorious and redeemable, And is God's plan for the future that heaven will come here, but it is also broken and in need of redemption. And it makes us think of the right things about ourselves, that we are made in the image of God, that each one of us is infinitely valuable. And in him we pray and we worship by him. We are empowered to do all the things that Jesus did. And in him we experience the adoption by our heavenly father into his family so that he is ours we are his and all these people around here are our brothers and sisters in christ so as i said without the spirit you're not going to get very far spiritually but with him you will live so as paul goes on to say in ephesians be filled and go on being filled with the holy spirit over and over and over again pressed down and pouring over we are like sieves We leak his presence, but the more that we can open ourselves and say, I am a sieve leaking your presence, the more that we can experience God's love and his goodness, the more the spirit can flow through us, the more we come alive and be the people that we sense we are. There is no optional extra with the spirit. He is the Christian life. Without him, we will surely die. It's a joke. Good. So this, Paul's explanation of the spirit the spirit-filled Christian life in chapter 8 is kind of the turning point of the whole of Romans. Before it, he's done the past. Everything that we, um, uh, we, we were living with before Jesus came, he does the cross and the resurrection, and then the giving of the spirit is the present. This is the Christian life, the spirit-filled life. And then he goes on to talk about the future. What happens now that we have been and received the spirit? How do Christians, spirit-filled people, then go on and live. So uh, firstly, as Hannah looked at last week, Paul addresses how spirit-filled people can live in terms of their relationship with God, with one another, and particularly with their enemies. And today, it's about how spirit-filled people can conduct our relationship with the government. Ooh. (laughs) So exciting. Uh, So... Without much further ado, Raoul is going to read uh, chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. This is Romans 13, starting at verse 1. It says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, 
it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Uh, Okay, so let's make some basic points to start with. Number one, God has all authority for all time ever. First one, there is no authority except that which God has established. Point number two, from his infinite ultimate authority, God has allowed a degree of authority to be exercised by earthly rulers throughout history. Verse two, the authorities that exist have been established by God. But three, Just because he has allowed earthly rulers to exercise earthly authority, that does not mean that he universally condones how they use it. Paul is writing in AD 54. This is the year Nero had just become emperor, aged 16. Now, during the early part of uh, Nero's reign, it was relatively peaceful. Uh, However, things didn't stay like that for long. Ten years later, there was a great fire in Rome. Three quarters of the whole of Rome burnt. And the people wanted to blame Nero for it, probably because he set it alight, because he was a bit weird. He'd done things like murdering his mother, murdering his first wife, murdering his second wife. He'd gone a bit crazy. He was very, very scary. And Nero, whether he did light the fire or not, decides, oh, I know how I will solve this. I will pin it on the Christians. No one really likes them anyway, so let's just say the Christians did it. And all of the people of Rome went, what a great idea, we didn't like the Christians, and they start rounding up the Christians. And what starts off as a little bit of persecution of a few Christians for setting a huge fire ends up in being hundreds and thousands of Christians rounded up in the streets. And then they had um, animal skins placed on them, they were hunted like dogs around the streets, they were then uh, nailed to crosses, uh, and then set on fire. And any uncharred remnants of Christian bodies were then used as nightlights for the city during the evening. Simply because Nero had the earthly authority to do this, and that this authority had in some way been given to him by God, the ultimate authority, obviously, obviously does not condone in God's mind this utterly murderous, disgusting, barbaric, and genocidal treatment of innocent people. As one ancient writer, Oregon, put it, nobody will deny that our senses, sight, sound, and thought, are given to us by God, but though we get them from God, what we do with them is up to us. So, God gives authority, but he doesn't necessarily condone how it's used. Point number four, and this is where it gets tricky. All Christians, says Paul, nevertheless must submit to these earthly powers. Let everyone be subject, subject to governing authorities. Really? 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 Let me try to explain. Paul is talking, talking in generalized terms here, not specific. He has all earthly authorities for all of time in mind, not just a particular rule. So on the one hand, he's holding together utopian society, and on the other, hellish dystopia and everything in between. 
all different types of rules. Verse 2, whoever rebels against the authority, whichever authority that might be, says Paul, is rebelling against God, what God has instituted. They're rebelling against what God has instituted, not the authority itself. For Paul, therefore, the rightness or wrongness of the authority is not the primary question. But that is one we're going to go on to in a minute. The primary question for Paul is whether we are going to acknowledge the ultimate authority of God. By being subject to earthly authorities, we are not giving earthly authorities our devotion. We are not even necessarily giving them our endorsement. We are not actually really giving them anything at all in terms of our worship, in fact. Rather, by being subject to earthly authorities, we are acknowledging that their authority only ever comes from God. And therefore, we are acknowledging both God's ultimate authority and his ability to do whatever he likes with that authority. And in so doing, we are saying we believe something extraordinary about God, that he is Lord of the whole universe. And this, for Paul, is the only thing that really matters. So paradoxically, by obeying Caesar, we are saying Jesus is Lord. And similarly, if we rebel, we are effectively saying, God doesn't really know what he's doing with all this authority stuff. How dare he set up the world so that these terrible tyrant-type people might have some authority? And so to rebel against him is to say that we know better than God. We should, he should not be doing this. We would do a much better job of ruling this than him. And so by paradoxically saying that if we refuse to obey Caesar, we are in fact proclaiming that Jesus is not Lord. This is Paul's point. Because ultimately, for Paul, this whole question is one of faith. Are we going to trust God? Are we going to believe that there is actually only one true authority in the whole universe? Are we going to believe to such a degree that we place our lives in his hands irrespective of what is going on in our world? Are we going to acknowledge him as Lord and then submit ourselves to regimes under God, even when they aren't necessarily particularly good? This is the question. This is what Christians are called to. The worship of a higher authority. The worship of the one true God and nothing else. Now, this is all well and good, isn't it? With relatively inconsequential stuff. Stuff like jaywalking. You're allowed to jaywalk in, in the UK, and it is a better place for it. It has been quite difficult for me, coming from the UK, to get my head around the fact you can't just cross the street wherever you like. I did it yesterday. I felt wonderful. Uh, there was a whole, it was, it was a whole street with no cars on it, and I needed to get to the other side. So do you know what I did? I walked across the street, and then a car about 200 feet away slammed on his brakes and then looked, on, looked at me like I was killing someone and I was like, I'm just crossing the street. However, however, what I'm actually doing in Paul's mind is saying I know better. In a very tiny, tiny, tiny little way, I'm saying, I don't acknowledge that God has set up this government, given it some authority. 
and that in then agreeing to its authority, I am honouring him. So, let us as Christians honour the state's authority. Because to do so is to honour God's ultimate authority, the only one due our worship. But that's inconsequential things like, should the speed limit be 55 or 60? It probably should be 60 or 65, I think. Yeah, exactly. But it's not, it's 55. So just get over it. That's what Paul's saying. Get over it. What about some more serious things, though? What about state-enforced conscription to serve in illegitimate wars? What about states making it illegal to publicly declare yourself as a Christian, as is the current state of affairs in Somalia, for example? What about the states requiring citizens to discriminate, 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 discriminate against people on the grounds of race or religion or gender or sexuality? Is Paul really saying that we as Christians just submit to all of these things because we ultimately trust in God, that God is in charge? I don't think so. Verse 3 to 7, Paul paints a picture of an idealized state, one in which if you do good, you will be rewarded, and if you do evil, you will be punished. But we know full well that the idea is not the reality. And Paul's life explains this. From 2 Corinthians, we know Paul himself was beaten, he was uh, imprisoned, he was flogged, he was close to death, he had to escape wrongful arrest, all at the hands of Roman authorities. And from Acts, we know that he had been stripped and beaten and flogged and wrongly imprisoned. And of course, he knew as well as we did that Jesus had suffered unjustly at the hands of Pontius Pilate and he'd been crucified, an innocent man on a Roman cross. So patently, it is not the case that the state always rewards good and only ever punishes evil. Moreover, the fact that Paul, as well as the other apostles, experienced the brutal force of the Roman Empire and also of Jewish religious justice is evidence that Paul and the apostles didn't actually always abide by the law, otherwise why were they experiencing this? Nor Jesus, of course, who repeatedly contravened the religious laws of the Pharisees. So, all this means, yes, there is a line. A line over which the spirit-filled Christian cannot go, even when obligated by the ruling authorities. And it's a line that is defined by two very, very important principles, both of which underpin Paul's argument here. The first principle is to do with worship. The primary motivation for obeying earthly authorities, says Paul, is to acknowledge God's ultimate authority. So, by extension, any law which would stop us from worshipping the one true God or would force us to worship something other than the one true God must and has to be at every turn necessarily rejected by the Christian. And there is, of course, ample precedent for this. Peter declares uh, to the religious authorities who wish to silence him uh, in his preaching in Acts that we must obey God, not man. And when Pharaoh orders the Hebrew midwives to kill their newborn sons, the midwives were told, worship God, did not do what the king of Egypt had told them, and they let the boys live. Shadrach, Meshach, and under the bed we go, all refused to worship the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar and were thrown in a fire as a result. And Daniel carried on praying to God despite a clear law prohibiting him from doing so and was fed to some lions, as we know. All of these heroic refusals 
in direct contradiction of humanly ordained laws. But most significantly, in each case, the purpose was to demonstrate worshipfulness of God, not defiance of a government per se. So, let's be honest for a second. I don't like wearing masks. I really didn't like wearing masks. I didn't think we should wear them for as long as we did. I didn't like the sense of restriction it caused me. I didn't agree. Try as I might, and don't worry, I tried. I could find no verse in the Bible which said, to wear a mask is an abomination against your God. Or, you shall not clothe your mouth with itchy disposable fabric, for by doing so you worship Lord Fauci and not the Lord God of creation. It is impossible to say that the institution of a mask mandate either prohibited me from worshipping the one true God or forced me to worship any other God. The same is true of lockdowns, of gathering in place orders. Now, we don't necessarily agree with these things, but this does not preclude healthy, respectful Christian debate about all of these things. And how we interact with it is the subject, actually, of another talk, which I'm not going to talk about here. But following Paul, and this is the point, given that none of the laws mentioned impinge on our freedom to worship God, we submit to them because we submit to God. Let's be honest for another second. Here in America, we as Christians, if you consider yourself a Christian, we are not being persecuted. I mean, did you struggle to get here this morning? Actually, that's not a good question. <laughs> the marathon is not persecution. Did you fear imprisonment, beatings, crucifixion? on account of coming to church this morning? Did anyone accost you for carrying a Bible? Have you been silenced from preaching the gospel lately? Serious question. The Christians of Somalia, Yemen, Libya, and Eritrea are daily. In fact, every day across the world, 13 Christians are killed because of their faith, 12 churches are attacked, 12 Christians are unjustly imprisoned or arrested, and five are abducted every single day. So let us, as Western American Christians, be very, very, very careful when we're tempted to say that we are being marginalized or discriminated against and particularly persecuted. It belittles the genuine suffering of our brothers and sisters around the world for whom we should be praying, sending resources, and thanking God for them. And it actually, for our sake, creates this sort of victimhood that distracts us from the actual central task, which is acknowledging the one true God as the ultimate authority. Anything that gets in the way of that is a waste of time. And if Paul can write what he's writing here under the rule of Emperor Nero, having experienced all the genuine persecution of flogging and imprisonment and beatings on any number of occasions, I think we should and can allow this passage to speak to us on its own terms in wonderfully but imperfectly yet free modern America, should we not? So pay your taxes, is what I'm saying. Respect your government officials. Do not be indebted to them in terms of revenue, respect, 
or honor, says Paul. So firstly, where the line is, is determined by how free we are to worship the true God. Secondly, it is defined by love of our neighbor. Uh, The passage that Raoul read continues like this, if we could have this up from verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is an interesting move from Paul. He switches from talking about earthly state laws and how we should obey them to talking about God's holy law in the form of four of the Ten Commandments, which are not just empirically useful for the ordering of society, but also perfect and divine and righteous in every single way. This is the law that through Jesus and by his Spirit has now been fulfilled and written on our hearts. It's that which supersedes every other law in the whole of history, and it is summed up in one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does, not harm to a, love does no harm to a neighbor. Love is the fulfillment of the law. In doing so, Paul, simply following Jesus, says what Jesus has said. The greatest command is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else fulfilled in that. So for us, spirit-filled, law-on-our-hearts believers, what defines our behavior above all else is these two. So if and only if an earthly law directly threatens our ability to fulfill these and only these, are we to break human laws. Speed limits, jaywalking, tax paying, mask mandates, neither preclude me from worshiping God nor inhibit me from loving my neighbor. In fact, they might actually really help me to love my neighbor. By contrast, In 1850, in this country, the Fugitive Slave Act was passed. This obligated all state officials and all good citizens to aid in the recapturing of slaves who had escaped and then return them to bondage. Romans 13 was often quoted by the proponents of this law as a means to justify and enforce Christian adherence. And if we want to bring it a little bit more contemporary, Something not too similar happened a few years ago when a certain attorney general quoted this same passage to try to silence Christians protesting against his law of separating illegal immigrant children from their illegal immigrant parents at the southern border. I have a feeling Paul would have a thing or two to say about this. In both instances, God's holy charge, his divine eternal command to love our neighbor and not do harm to them seems to have gone out the window. Christians were entirely right and godly in their protest against and refusal to abide by these thoroughly unchristian laws. I have a very hard time finding any biblical justification for any Christian who would stand by them. To be clear, I am not talking about immigration. It's a very complex uh, subject about which I don't know enough, and I know much bigger brains than me are trying to work it out. I'm talking about doing harm to people, humans made in the image of God, always and every time wrong. In 1930s Germany, it became government policy to only declare fealty to the Fuhrer. 
and also to the Aryan nation. A large number of influential Christian pastors and theologians sacrificed their devotion to the one true God, were allowed to keep their jobs because they did so, and became complicit in the most despicable idolatry as a result. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth were two German, well, one's not German, but they were both in Germany, two theologians who were notable exceptions. Both refused to declare allegiance to Hitler and were instrumental in founding the Confessing Church, an outlaw group of Christians who stood up to the Nazi regime and proclaimed Christ crucified. Bonhoeffer ultimately paid for all of this with his life executed by the SS. And before the war had begun, Barth's resistance had meant uh, he was removed from his university, he was tried, and he was exiled by the Nazi party. This is what Bart said at his trial. I shall obey God rather than you. You have made Hitler a God incarnate and thus done serious violation to the first commandment. Now, I know it's lazy and, of course, actually quite dangerous to make comparisons between Nazi Germany and modern government. Please know that that's not my intention. But it does actually show what humankind is capable of, doesn't it? And for us, the point is this. Every seemingly small, inconsequential giving in to the temptation of not honoring God's lordship, be that in not resisting idolatrous laws or failing to honor God by obeying the government makes the next slightly larger temptation that bit easier to succumb to. And on it goes over and over and over again. Let us not give the devil a foothold. So to end, and I'm sorry that we've gone on. What does this all mean to us right now? Paul's main point is this, Jesus is Lord. Are you going to let him be? Are you going to acknowledge that in every single little aspect of your life? Is Jesus for Lord for you? Saying Jesus is Lord is deeply political at his time because Caesar is Lord. It's punishable by death to not acknowledge that Caesar is Lord. To say Jesus is Lord is to say I reject that. To say Jesus is Lord for us in this time is to say any number of things which are quite confrontational. It's to say that America is not Lord. It's to say that the Constitution, the flag, and the Founding Fathers are not Lord. It's to say that the American dream is not Lord. It's to say that your individual freedom is not Lord. The environment is not the Lord. The Bible is not the Lord. It's saying your career, your money, your success, your rights, your sexuality, all of these are not the Lord. Your relationships even are not the Lord. And it is saying that you are not the Lord and I am not the Lord. There is great freedom in this. We have is we believe that in putting Jesus as Lord, he is going to lord it over us. He is going to destroy us. He is going to make, him, uh, make our lives miserable. Jesus' lordship is one of servanthood. It's one of service. It's one of lifting people up. Jesus comes to set people free. All these other lordships, what they do is enslave us. They make us fixate on these things. They make us anxious and worried. These lords are not big enough to actually set us free. And what we do is we become completely entrapped by them. Jesus comes 
in all his grace and mercy, walking through Jerusalem, saying, I'm come to set the captives free from all these things that have robbed the life from you. We talked quite a lot about control on the day away yesterday. We're taught to have control over every aspect of our lives. And it's very hard to shake. What Jesus is after, though, is for him to have control, because he's just a lot, lot better at running our lives than we are. As I said yesterday, how's it going? How's it going, running your own life? Is it all joy and wonder? Would you not like the one who actually knows you better than you know yourself to run your life for a bit? It might do you amazing good. He might actually be quite good at this thing if he's Lord. Would you like him to be Lord? He will set you free. That's the challenge. That'll do.